Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, as we've entered into the month of March, the promise of spring that is coming and and will come. And we thank you, Lord, we know it's coming. Just as we thank you for the promise that we know that you're coming back. And so, Lord, as in March, we can endure sometimes the difficulties of March and the last throes of winter because we know that it is ending and we know that there's a new time coming of freshness and renewal. In the same way, Lord, we can go through the challenging times we're in now because we know that there's a hope that is waiting for us and it is the hope of your return. And Father, now we turn to your word and we... We open our hearts as best we know how, and we trust the Holy Spirit to enable us to hear what it is your Spirit wants to say to us today. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who communicates with us, that you are real, and you more than we want to know you, do you want us to know you, to love you, to trust you, to worship you, to believe in you, and to walk day by day in our faith in you. Lord, I can't do that in my strength. I just know the things that you've put in my heart. And now I trust them to you to bring them forth with accuracy and under the anointing of your Spirit so that we may have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what the Spirit wants to say to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. When I was looking at the schedule and planning the time away and I realized I was originally planning to come back on... On Monday, I don't like to come back because uh, we got back uh, late yesterday. We do not like to come back and then turn around and go right into a service because sometimes it takes a little while to get my head into things. Um, and, and I realized with the place we were going to, we had to come back on Saturday. And um, I just questioned it, but I knew down inside of me I needed to minister today. And as we were down there, I'm asking the Lord, Why? because I really did not have a sense of where to go, he began to burst some things in me out of things that I've been reading and spending time on. And I believe this is going to be very important for for where we're going as a church and where we're going as believers. So we're going to begin a new new, uh, series today, and the series is entitled, Who is this God we serve? We're going to get to know him a little better. But I want to go through some introductory comments, and for those of you that download the notes, they're in there. So I'm going to just kind of go through them. And this is really just an introduction. There's a very simple purpose that I have for today. From the beginning of time, man has had this inherent sense that there's some being out there that's beyond them. Somewhere we came from something, and there's someone out there that is greater than we are, and, and there have been various... Uh, cultures that have believed in who that is and various philosophers and religious people that have had ideas of who that is. But the point is that there is inherent in human beings some awareness that there's someone or something greater than us, that we're not everything. And Romans chapter 1, Paul pretty well lays that, lays that out. Almost every civilization that we've discovered in our studies have, have had some kind of God that they tried, that they worshipped. And they saw this God, whatever, whether it was an eternal spirit or whether it was um, uh, nature, but they looked to this God as a source of provision and for protection. Because inherent in the concept of a God is someone that's beyond us that's able to protect us 
and able to provide for us because we know as we look at life itself, we can't in ourselves do that. So a God is someone or something we look to to provide those things, basic things for us. It's really three things. It's protection, provision, and identity. But we're going to talk about the first two as we go, as, as we go through this. And philosophers uh, have looking at this have, have said just because they look at man and realize that if, that if, 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 there was no, if there is not a God, man will create one because he knows he needs one. And there have been famous philosophers who have said that. Voltaire was the first one. And I don't want to get into it because he didn't mean exactly what we've said he meant. But Nietzsche was a famous philosopher, basically said that God is dead and we killed him. The interesting thing is Nietzsche's dead today and God's still alive. And Nietzsche now knows God was still alive. But Nietzsche basically said that Paul had to invent the God that he taught in order to go through the things that he went through. And the idea here is this, is that there's something inherent in us that knows this is what's behind all the superheroes. I mean, they're not new. Superheroes is we have to believe there's somebody out there that, that except for kryptonite, can, nothing can hurt. There's someone out there that it, you know, has superhuman abilities because somewhere inside we realize we're not enough. We're vulnerable and we need to have somebody out there. And so... The, 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 those that don't know God will say we have to invent one. Those of us that know God know we don't have to invent one. He's the one that invented us. So the question is, is our need to have a God so deep that we will create one for ourselves? Now I'm talking to us personally. Because we'll get into this, we all do, to some degree, create the God we want to worship. As Christians, we who worship God, how do we know? These are, these are fair questions to ask. How do we know that the God we worship is real? Are we just going through an exercise and we come to church and, and we love being with one another, we love singing these songs, but is this God we're worshiping, is He really out there? Is He really here? And if He is real, what's He like? What's he like? How can, and the next question is, and how can we know? Because here's the challenge. You can get to know me and I can get to know you because we could have lunch or dinner and we can sit down and talk to one another and you can look at me and tell whether I'm paying attention to you or not or I'm on my phone or, or you can tell whether I really care enough about to look you in the eyes so we can actually get to know one another because through our senses we first of all can believe that you're sitting down at the table with me or that I'm here talking to you and then as we listen and open our hearts we can get to know what one another is like. But how do you do that? with a being that's not visible to us, that our senses cannot detect. These are important questions that we need to be... How can we know? Because if we don't know that as a certainty, then our faith is based on a hope. It's not based on a confidence. And many Christians are at this point. They profess a faith in God. They profess a knowledge in God. But really down in our inner man, when the, when the crisis comes, that's when we find out what we really believe and how, really, how real this God is that we come and worship on Sunday morning and what we really believe He's like. 
Because what you turn to and who you turn to in a crisis is who in the depths of your heart is your God. And we need to realize where the truth is. By the way, God already knows. We're the ones that find out last. So God's not mad at us where we are. He wants us to see the truth because it's only by walking in the truth can we walk in a relationship with Him. Jesus says, God is longing for true worshipers. And those are those that worship Him in spirit and in truth. So that means we have to have a heart that's open to who He really is and what He wants to show us about Himself. So this is all kind of an introduction. So the answer for us is the, found, the answer for us is the foundation. Whatever we're going to find out together is the foundation for our relationship with God and our faith. It all comes back down to who He is, what He's like, and how real He is to you. This is why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11, chapter 6, without faith it's impossible, not hard, not a challenge. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Because in order to come, these are the two things that are please God. In order to come to Him, you must believe that He is. And so the question is, do you believe that He is? And we're all going to sit in church and say, I believe that He is. But how do you come to Him? When do you come to Him? How often do you come to Him? And in what way do you come to Him? That tells you who He is to you. In order to come to Him, you must, one, believe that He exists, that He's real. And number two, this is the second thing He wants us to believe about Him, that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He'll answer you. He'll answer your prayers. He'll tell you who He is. He will reward you with Himself if you will diligently seek Him. And it's not hard to do. So who this God is and what this God like is like is the foundation for our whole life, our whole walk with Him, our faith, our relation. It's the foundation of our relationship with one another. And in many Christians today, that foundation is weak. It may be hardened so much that it's cracked by the pressures and the issues of life, or it may be so soft as sand that whatever we build on it won't stand the tests and trials of life and of the times we live in. Because we're living in perilous times. We have this virus out there that everybody's panicking about. And I'm not saying there isn't reason to be concerned. In East Africa, we need to, I was reminded as we look at that video, in East Africa now, Kenya and other places in East Africa, they have these locust plagues that are just devouring... Some of these swarms, are, I read, are as big as villages. And that's an area that's already being devastated by famine. So we're in challenging times. So what is the foundation? Are we scared and panicked in these times? Do we feel like chicken little that the sky is coming in and everything's going to cave in on us? Are our lives, are, do we live in fear from the time we get up to the time we go to bed and maybe halfway through the night? Then what's your life standing on? What is your life 
Build, who is this God to us that we come and we worship? So I really believe, as God was showing me while we were away, that to go where God's calling us to go, we've got to go back to the foundation. I've shared this with you many times before. But for, for, well, I know why. In, in my various, the various law offices that I worked in when I was a lawyer for over 20 years, and a number of them, my office was situated right across from a construction site of a high-rise building. And after two or three days, I got, maybe God's trying to teach me something. So I began to kind of watch what they were doing. And the last one was in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. They were building a building that was supposed to be, a, was going to be, ended up as a 40-story office building. But they built it out over an 11-story building in front of it. So there were two lots the front lot was an 11-story historical building, and then the lot behind it, they built the foundation to go up 10 stories, 11 stories, go out, and then go up another 30 stories. And I noticed that as I walked by the site for months, four months, they spent digging and pouring the foundation. They went down four stories with the foundation. And then they had this huge concrete block that was two stories high. And I began to ask the senior partner that I worked with because he was very aware of what was going on. He's, and then he explained to me what this design for this building was. He said, it's called a cantilevered building. So imagine the people on the 40th story realizing that the first, the first 10 stories isn't under them. And they're leaning out over the street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So what they did is they spent four months preparing the foundation because they sunk steel, steel beams on an angle to hold it up from tilting forward. The point is, and then once they had that done, the steel structure went up in a matter of weeks. So they spent four months preparing a foundation for a structure that went up, the, stru- the steel structure went up in just weeks. That tells you something about the importance of the foundation that's laid. Sometimes in our life, we've, we've never laid the right foundation. For whatever reason. Because if I took an interview this morning of everybody here, I'm going to get a different story of how you came to the Lord and how like, you came to where you are. Some of you were raised in families that you were built, had a very strong foundation. Some of us, like me, was snatched in my 30s out of a wrong foundation with a bad, weak foundation. And I've had to scramble to catch up. And so I really believe God wants us to go back to the very foundation of, of the Bible, the foundation of God's relationship with you and me, and we're going to see it in two verses, but we're not going to get to there until the end of today. We have to build a foundation for building the foundation. All right, that's just the way my mind works. All right, so if this God is invisible... And this is how I thought. This is exactly the thought process I went through after I got saved. Because my crisis was, I'm going to realize, I was, I got to be careful with the time. I was, I was, I was, a, had been a lawyer for 10 years. When I, it's scary. Because <laughs> what that does to your mind, and we got several lawyers here, and I understand. It's a training in how you think, but it's a critical training. Your thought to decide, figure out what's wrong in a situation. And, 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 but, and, and so, uh, I was been a lawyer for for ten years, and I forgot what my point was. 
foundation. Thank you. That's good. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Lord. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. And so my training was to take things apart and understand them. And now I'm given this Bible. I mean, I was... My favorite subject in law school was the Federal Income Tax Code. I told you I was sick. (laughs) Because it was rational. It was laid out. The lawyers are trained in, I can know where to look for something. I may not know the answer, but I know where to look because it is rationally laid out. And I got this book that's supposed to reveal God to me, and there's no rationality about how it's laid out at all. It starts with stories, and then you've got these prophets, whatever they are. They're just speaking in symbols and things like that. And then you go over through 400 years into history to the New Testament, and there's a story about Jesus and these different stories and lessons that come out of it. And then you've got Paul writing lessons, explained it. It's like, how can I be confident? How can I be confident? Young people, this is important for young people. It's important for, how do I know this is God's Word? How do I know that? It's a book. And it's not rational. And it's not laid out in an organized way. If God wanted to tell us something, He should have told us like He'd tell a lawyer. Start with principle one, go to principle two, go to principle three. Then I can understand it. How can I trust this? So I had to make a decision. And the decision was simply this, and this is why I'm going through this with you. All right, God, if you're real, and and I do believe you're real, and if you want me to know who you are and what you're like and what you require of me, you have a responsibility to give me something to tell me what that is because I can't figure that out on my own. And then I came to the conclusion that the only thing I knew that came close to that was this Bible. So I made the decision, I'm going to find out by deciding this is God speaking to me and see what happens. And the moment I did this, this book came alive. This became God speaking to me. So the point here is if we're learning, we want to understand and know, is this God real and what He's like, then then we've got to find out how can we know that? How can we know about a God who's out there somewhere, who's created everything, but I can't see Him, I can't hear Him, I can't touch Him, and I can't smell Him? How can we know that God? Well, it becomes clear He has to reveal Himself to us. He has to reveal Himself to us. So we're going to look at a story where God did that. So go with me to Exodus chapter 19, and while you're turning there, don't put it up there yet. I'm going to give you some background. Don't put it up there yet. I don't want them distracted from... Here's the background. Generations before, we start with a, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, God creates man and woman to have an intimate relationship with Him. He's not invisible to them. They can look in His face and He can look in their face. They know His voice. And then chapter 3 is the fall. Man decides to become his own God and there's a spiritual death that takes place. 
And from that point on, God begins a process of preparing people to reveal himself to them. To show how enormous this fall was. It takes thousands of years for God to get man prepared just to hear from him. So what God does is God says, I know what I'll do. I'm go- God always knows what he's going to do, so it's not like he got a new idea. God's, I'm, God decided that he was going to reveal to the world what he was like by forming a relationship with a people. And in order to do that, God had to make his own people. So he didn't go look around and pick a nation or tribe and said, I like that people. No, God said, I'm going to start over so I can build a foundation in this people so that they can have a relationship with me the way I want to have with them. So God started by choosing a man, a pagan, a moon worshiper, Abram. And God chooses him and calls him to leave the country he's in and go somewhere that he will tell him where he gets there. And God enters into a covenant with him and changes his name from Abram to Abraham and his wife from Sarai to Sarah. And God announces a covenant and God says, I'm going to give you a son, even though they were already 75 and 65 at the time and she was barren. God says, I'm just going to supernaturally give you a child. He's going to be conceived in Sarah and brought forth and I'm going to form my people through him. And then he went on and gave greater promises than that. And so God brings this people along through about 300, about 400 years, excuse me, 300 years later. This nation is now grown. Jacob, the grandson, is now the patriarch of this nation. And it's about 70 people, and there's a terrible famine coming on the land, and God, through a long story, it's in Exodus 50, brings them down into Egypt to supply their needs in Egypt. God's already sent one of his sons down to oversee the process of taking care of them. The thing is that they overstay their need to be there. And so when the famine's over, they just stay there. And for about 400 years, they stay there. And they end up becoming slaves to the Egyptians. There were more of them, and they were mightier than the Egyptians, but they submitted themselves, and that's a whole other series. They submitted themselves to the dominion of Pharaoh because he was supplying them with, oh, he was supplying them with their needs. Oh, he was protecting them. Oh, he gave them an identity. So Pharaoh became their God, and they lost touch with the God Jehovah who had created them and formed them for his own purposes and for his own relationship. For 400 years they were there. Now Egypt was the most idolatrous nation that maybe has ever existed. They had thousands upon thousands of gods. Every little thing, every little need had a god to take care of that need. And they're now generations raised in this atmosphere. And after 400 years, they'd grown into a nation of thousands of slaves to the Egyptians. And then they finally get tired of being in this bondage, and they cry out to God, the God that they'd heard of for their fathers, to save them. And this is what God's like. He was waiting for them to really want to get out of the bondage. And when he, they cried out to him... God already had the deliverer ready 80 years into his preparation, 80 years into his foundation 
to lead them out of bondage, for God to use him to lead them out of bondage. And so as we're going to turn to this chapter, what's happened now is God has delivered them through ten miraculous displays of who he is. It was a showdown between God and Pharaoh as to who the real God was. And it ended up costing Pharaoh his firstborn child. And so now the scene is God has supernaturally delivered them. Not only that, He prospered them with wealth as they left because the Egyptian women threw their gold at them. And imagine having people just throwing gold at you to get out. (laughs) Here's my riches, here's my gold, here's my... But God was going to use those for purposes other than for their greed. And so now they're out. Then they get to the Red Sea. And when they look like they're going to be free, there's an obstacle there. God supernaturally parts their obstacle. They walk across on dry land. When they get to the other side, the mightiest army in the face of the earth barrels in to try to destroy them, and they watch the sea come in and swallow their enemy up. So in one day's time, they've been supernaturally delivered from the mightiest nation on the earth, and they have watched their enemy swallowed up in the sea. And this God of their fathers did this for them. And now they're three months out into this wilderness, and God directs them down to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And we're going to pick up... That's the background to the story. We're going to pick up there once I turn to the page. We're going to pick up there once I turn to the page. All right, here we go. We're going to go down through most of this chapter. On the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him to the mountain, from the mountain. Now, here's, here's what we're looking at here. The God who we've just been talking about, the creator of this people, watched them grow to 70, now sent them to Egypt to take care of their need, and now he's delivering thousands, millions of them out of Egypt. They don't know who he is. They know stories from their great-great-grandparents. They've now seen this God of their deliverer do what He said He was going to do, but they don't really know Him. They spent 400 years in idolatry. They spent 400 years as slaves dependent on somebody for their protection, their provision, and for their identity. And so you're not going to just flip a switch and change what you believe and who you know this God is. God, God is a master communicator. God knows how to communicate. He's got a lot of experience. He knows how to communicate with human beings. He's got a lot of experience. He knows how to communicate with stubborn, thick-headed, stiff-necked people. Amen? God has a lot of experience. <laughs> so I confidence God can somehow get through to me. Because I am stubborn, thick-headed, and sometimes stiff-necked, and I'm not looking over at my wife at all right now. 
So this is what God's doing. God wants to reveal the very thing we're going to begin to look at. God has got to do with His people who think they know who God is. They think they know the one that saved them. Ooh. Because their deliverance from Egypt is a type of our deliverance out of the world. Egypt to us represents the world we were saved out of. A world filled with idolatry. Worships all kinds of things. It may not be little statues on their dashboard, but it's all kinds of things that are worshipped. And we were saved and delivered out of that, but we're just like these Egyptians. Our mind is still back in all that stuff we were brought out of, and we really don't know who this God is yet. Yes, He did a dramatic miracle. He saved me. Yes, He did a dramatic miracle. He brought me out of where I was. He filled me with His Holy Spirit. Yes, He did those things for me, but do I really know who this God is that did? He has to reveal Himself. So this is God's purpose with what we're about to read together. So now, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying to him, You shall say to the house of Jacob, that's Israel, and tell the children of Israel that you have, see, that you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is what Moses, to go down the mountain, this is what Moses is to tell the people God wants them to know. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and, look at this, brought you to myself. So God's saying, I didn't just get you out of Egypt. I got you out of Egypt for a reason. I got you out of Egypt to bring you to myself. This is why God formed them through Abraham to begin with. This is why God made man to begin with, to have someone he could love and commune with, someone he could be intimate with and close with, someone who could belong to him and he could belong to them. And that's what got destroyed and ruined by the fall and God was reestablishing this. But again, the enormity of that fall shows how long it took for God to be able to do this. Thousands of years until Christ came. But this is a precursor of it. This is a preparation for it. So God says, I did this to bring you, not out of Egypt, not so that you could serve me, but I brought you to me because I love you and I want you for myself. I suggest to you, God saved you out of the world. God saved you from whatever you were in. God saved you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. God did that so you could have, He could have you to himself. This is why James says God is a jealous God. John says that all through the Bible. God is jealous because he wants you for himself. He loves you so much. He's jealous of anything that pulls you away from him because he wants you for himself. He doesn't want you to, to be a slave. He doesn't want you to serve him. Yes, he wants to serve, but that's not his motive. His motive was to have you for himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey the, my voice and keep my covenant, that refers to the covenant he made with Abraham. Look at this. You shall be a special treasure to me above all people 
for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and look at this, a holy nation. Holy doesn't mean they were perfect, didn't make mistakes. Holy meant they were separate from the world because they belonged to Him. He brought them out of the world, and what made them holy and special is they were His. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is what God is, wants to tell them of what His purpose is and what He wants to do for them. Now there's a condition, they have to keep His commandments. They have to keep their side of it. Alright, let's go on. Verse 7. So Moses, comes, go, Moses came and called the elders of the people together and laid them. So God's talking to Moses at the top of the mountain and now He's come down to talk to the elders and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded. Then, look at this carefully, all the people answered. So they've got an invitation from God. I have called you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the world so you can be mine. And I want to make of you a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Ah, that sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? Unto me. And all you've got to do is just keep my commandments. All you've got to do is keep my word. And so the verse 8, the people answered and said, all that the Lord spoke, we will do. And I believe they were sincere. So God's making this invitation to them, but they still don't know who He is. They're just hearing this from Moses. They're, he's, they're hearing a real short sermon, this is God's word to you today, and they're standing up at the end and saying, we will do everything God said. And I believe they're sincere. But God knows them better than they know themselves. So often we have the best of intentions. I surrender all. I surrender all. And we are sincere. And walk out that door and there's a flat tire. And we just surrendered everything we surrendered. <laughs> we picked it all back up again. God, I don't know where you are. So here's what God's going to do. So God's, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people back to God. So Moses is reporting to God what the people said, as if God didn't hear it. Alright? Okay. So verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Is that because they were smelly and God didn't want to smell it? No. He's communicating something to them. Let's go on and read. And let them get ready for the third day, for on the third day, I think I've heard that elsewhere in the Bible, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Up until now, they've not seen God in any form. 
They're just hearing what Moses has reported to them. And they've said back to Moses. And God's saying, here's what I'm going to do. You've said you will keep your end of the covenant. You've said with all sincerity, you will surrender all. You will do what, you're, what I ask you to do. You will keep your part of it. I know that's what you've said, but I know you need something more than that. I know you need a foundation under you so that you can do what's in your heart to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down on the top of this mountain in three days, but I need you to take those three days to prepare yourself so that you can be in the presence of a holy God. So here's what you're going to do. You need to thoroughly wash your clothes because they were dirty and smelled. No, God wanted them to, to signify to their senses that they were not clean. Then he tells their husbands to, 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 to stay away from their wives. That means not to have physical relationships with them. Why? Because it was better. No. God wants to get them in their senses. What you're about to do is you're about to have a physical encounter with the Holy God and you've got to make yourself signified that this is a holy experience. Holy again does not mean perfect. Holy means separated for God out of the world. God wants to communicate to them that they are a holy people. They belong to Him. And they don't belong to the world. But God has to do this through their senses because they're just like us. Dumb sheep. All of us. Verse 12. We're going to skip down to... um, Verse 12. And you should have set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you don't go up on the mountain or touch a space. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. We ought to do that in church here. Whoever comes late. No. (laughs) No. But there's a lesson in that. We come late. We come casual. Our commitments once or twice a month because we really don't know who this God is that we have the opportunity and the privilege to come and worship. We're so casual about Him like He's somebody else that we can just visit when we want to visit. Verse 13, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned to death. This is the person that tries to come into place he's not supposed to. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. That means set apart, and they washed their clothes. And he said to them, be ready on the third day and don't come near your wives. That's what I just explained to you. Verse 16, now we're going to see on the third day. Then it came down on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and thick clouds of mountains. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand that, that what we're about to see of God is not all of Him. God at various times appeared either to Moses or to other individuals in various forms because God appeared in a form that He wanted to communicate to them some aspect of who He is, but it's not all of who He is. 
we won't have a time today to go to Hebrews chapter 12, talks about this, this mountain experience and in the New Testament version of that, basically saying, we don't come to this mountain. We come to Mount Zion. And it talks about who that mountain that is, God on Mount Zion. We'll get there. We'll get to that later on. But, but, but God here, so this is not all of God is. God is also kind and merciful and gentle and extremely patient with us. God has other parts than this. But this is what God wanted them to know about Himself. That's the whole lesson today. God is communicating here to these people that are precious to Him what He wants them to know about Him because He knows what they need to know about Him so that they can stay holy and they can worship Him. God knows what we need to know about Him, not what we think we need to know about Him. That's the whole lesson today. Where are we? Verse 16. Okay. Verse 17. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So Moses brought the people out of camp to meet with God. This is the thrill. Moses brought the whole church out to physically meet the God who delivered them out, the God who birthed this nation, the God who wants them to himself. God, Moses, led them out to say, people, here's God, God, here's these people, here's these people. what we do every time we come to church we should have such an exp- and you can do it in your living room dining room car but when we come together to see they came out together to do this when we come together to do that there's a synergy that takes place there's a there's a combining together of momentum of, of, of anointing to come together when we come out we're coming to meet this God with him who saved you, delivered you out of bondage, who has a home prepared for you, who has a hope, who wants to be the foundation of your life, who wants to be so involved with your life that He wants you to worry about nothing. He wants to take all your cares and concerns and carries them. But we don't believe in Him and trust Him because we don't really know Him and he wants, we know Him by coming together even more and watching what God will do, expecting God to do things expecting the God we're meeting who's the almighty God nothing's hard for him not just difficult nothing nothing take the most impossible thing you can think of in a relationship or a physical condition that's not even difficult for him let alone impossible One preacher I like to listen to looked at an impossible situation somebody brought to him and says, that's a piece of cake for God. That's not hard for him. And that person was delivered immediately. Look at the faith Jesus had in him. Look at the faith that Jesus had in him. Spoke to a tomb where a man had been there four days, embalmed. And spoke to that man by name. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth bound, head and feet, which means he didn't walk out. Why do we laugh? Why is that hard for God? 
this is who this God is. Moses has brought the people out to meet with. But where's the problem? The problem's on our side. Because we don't really know who this God is. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18. And Mount Sinai was completely, was completely in smoke because the Lord descended. And this wasn't the machines that churches have today. This was the tangible presence of God. I don't want a smoke machine in here. I want to see the glory cloud of God. I don't want something that can get disturbed by a power failure or somebody trips and unplugs the machine. I want to see the real thing in here. I want to see that glory cloud roll in from the back or roll down. I want to see the tangible odor of God, the presence of God's spirit, the sweet smell of God. He wants to do that more than we want it. So the problem's not on his end. We don't know who this God is. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by an audible voice. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the... Uh, and Moses went up. And then God tells Moses to go down and, and warn the people. Let's go over now. We're going to skip over to uh, Exodus 20, verse 18. Now what happens in the meantime, we're going to go back to there. Oh my Lord, in a minute... We're going to go back there faster than a minute. What's happened in the meantime is God's spoken to Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. So we're going to, now God, Moses comes down and gives them the Ten Commandments. Verse 18, Exodus 20, 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunders and lightnings and flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and the people saw it, and they trembled and stood far off, like a lot of people in church. And they said to Moses, look at this, you speak with us and we'll listen to you, we'll hear, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses said to the people, don't fear, for God has come down to test you. That word test means to train. God was training them. God was educating them in who He is. Don't come down. God has come to test you. Not a test you're going to fail, but God wants you to show you where you are. God wants to do something in you. Look at this. That is fear may be before you. Wait a minute. Moses just said, don't fear. And now he says, God's come down that you will fear. Whoa, wait a minute. This is, but it's a different fear. Don't fear. Don't be afraid of God. Because when you're afraid of God, you do what Adam and Eve did. They ran from Him and they hid for they were afraid. Why were they afraid? They know instinctively He's holy and I'm not. So I'm going to shrink away from a holy God because I might get punished because I know I've been things wrong. I'm not perfect. I've had wrong, whatever. Whatever you fill in the blanks. But God's come to test you, to train you so that His... I never saw that boy. His fear, His reverence for who He is. And this is what the church lacks today. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not afraid of Him so we run away from Him. 
It's a holy reverence for who this God is because you've begun to see who this God is that you may, that, so that you may not sin. So what God's saying here is, I told you what I want to do. I want you to be a holy people. I want you to belong to me. I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be mine, separate from the world. And you're going to be my testimony to the world of what I'm like because you're special to me. And all you've got to do is just do what I tell you to do. And they said, we'll do it. And God says, no, I know you too well. You need to say something before you'll do it. You need to see who it is that's your God. So I'll come down on the mountain and I'll display to you my awesome power that you may have a reverence for who this God is that's speaking to you. There's a verse at the end of, I think it's Isaiah 61 or some 64, somewhere in there, that says this is what God's looking for. Those that have a contrite heart and tremble at His word. That doesn't mean I'm afraid to open my Bible. That means I realize who it is that's speaking to me. One of my favorite verses is, For God is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. But that's only the second part of that verse. There's a therefore to be. Therefore God is at work in you. The first part of that verse is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not earn your salvation. Work it from the inside out. Work out this will that God has in your life. Why? Because you have reverence for who it is. For it's God that's at work in you. That's why we should be, be, we have ears to hear what God has to say to us. But we're so hard-hearted. We're so dull of hearing. Well, the Lord's talking to me. It's God who's talking to us. I remember one preacher came here, it really convicted me. He said, well, we say, well, the Lord's dealing with me. Think of what you're saying. God's told me what to do and I don't want to do it. <laughs> so we water it down. God's dealing with me. I'm disobedient. <laughs> God knows that, so He's not... Don't be shocked. He knows it. Because we don't know who it is that just spoke to me. We don't value His Word enough because we don't know who He is. We know intellectually, but not in our heart. And see, God wants to reveal Himself. He was showing them who He is. So what's this all about? God's people had lived for 430 years in a nation that worshipped thousands of idols. You don't realize how much easily idolatry gets into us because our nature's fallen. And the fall that Adam brought into mankind was a fall of idolatry. He chose up to worship and, and he had help from Satan and his wife. He chose to worship what he understood over what God said. God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, of freely enjoy. In fact, some versions say he commanded them to enjoy everything, except one tree. You can't eat of the tree of what? Of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes and tests them, tempts them to eat of substituting their own knowledge for good and evil over what God told them. God's command was as simple as it can be. Don't eat that fruit. And Satan's temptation was to add their own reasoning 
about what God said to exercise their own independent judgment of what was right and wrong for what God said. And that's where the church is today. That's where so many of us are today. Is we have God's Word. And we know it's God's Word. But because we've lost touch with or never understood who this God is that's speaking to us, we have very little regard for the power and the importance of His Word. And here's the problem with that. Because when we have little regard for His Word that says, don't do this or do this, or this is my, my favorite, this is my suggestion, it's a good idea if you love one another, because we really ought to get along, learn how to get along. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say it's a good idea, as well, you know, in the society you're living in, you're going to need each other, so you need to learn how to get along. That's not what Jesus said. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And the little regard the church has for that shows its little regard for who Jesus is. Oh, He's Savior, He's Healer, He's Redeemer, but He's not really Lord over my life if His words are not Lord over my life. But pastor, it's hard to forgive. He didn't say it was easy. He said, this is my commandment. And if He's commanded me to do something, I can do it because He will enable me to do it. This is why it's so important to go back and establish this foundation for our walk with Him, our walk with Him together as a church, because there's things He said to us as a church we need to listen to and obey because of who it is that has said it to us. So God formed a nation to bring them to Himself and to look only to Him to be holy. Idolatry, I was talking about. Idolatry is because we have a fallen nature. That because we have substituted ourselves as God, the source of our identity, I've got to go find out who I am. I've got to read books that help me find out who I am. Self-help. Self-help books. Because we're the source of our own provision. So we decide where we're going to get our provision from, and we decide who's going to protect us. We're our own God over our own kingdom. That's why we're rebels until we come to Christ. But all that thinking, all that ingrained in our flesh doesn't go away so easily. So when you're living in a world that is filled with idolatry, and I'm not talking about little statues, I mean anything other than God that's worshipped, anything other than God that gets our identity from, anything other than God, then that is so ingrained in us that our natural bent of our mind and our flesh is in that direction. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the revelation of who this God is to straighten us up. (laughs) So that we'll obey Him and we'll follow Him because He loves us and we are a holy people to belong to Him. We don't have time. God was teaching them to reference Him. Not because He has an ego problem. He knows what He can be for them. And He's jealous or anything else that tries to do this. This was the first and most basic thing God wanted them to know about Himself. And the the foundation for it all is in Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. The first commandment. And we'll pick up here next time. The Lord God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord. The word Lord there is Yahweh 
We'll talk about that next time. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the world, out of the bondage of sin. You shall, verse, the next verse, but you shall have no other gods before me. He's revealing them. This is the foundation of all the other commandments. This is the foundation of everything we do in our relationship with God is He is the Lord, our God, our God. And we'll pick up here next time. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's table together. And, uh, but before we do, I want to give an invitation to anybody that's here this morning that you have never received Christ as your Savior. And as